Since the dawn of man, humans have had to do repetitive tasks over and over again. However, now we have Python and we have Amazon Web Services at our disposal. What's cooking episode 21, we're going to be talking about some of the capabilities with Python and Amazon Web Services. Here we go. Cooking. Episode 21. 21 is a great number for many reasons. One of the main reasons I love the number 21, the GOAT, LaDainian Tomlinson. He is the reason I am a Chargers fan. But also, 21 is a big age in life to turn, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of new privileges come along with 21 years of age. The, the alcohol uh, age, you're able to drink legally, and a lot of other responsibilities come as a 21-year-old, so it's really just a great number for many reasons. It's also a great number because episode 21 of the What's Cooking podcast is loaded today. We have a really cool topic for you guys. Not going to be a guest episode today, but I do feel confident that what I'm sharing with you is very helpful. It is very interesting useful. And if you have the patience and the learning capacity to stick around with me today, you're going to be able to find out quite a bit of new information. Unless you already know this information, I don't think any of my listeners are actively utilizing some of the things that I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. But if you do, then more power to you and you are a champion for being ahead of the curve. President Joe Biden once said, the best way to get something done, if you hold near and dear to you, that you like to be able to, uh, anyway. And I think if he were to finish that statement, what Joe Biden was saying is that the best way to get something done is to open up Python and write some code and then send it over to Amazon Web Services so you can get it automated to run and execute at a set schedule of your liking. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Python and Amazon Web Services and some of the capabilities that you have with those two put together. But first, I want to let you know how I discovered this possibility. You guys might remember in a previous episode, me mentioning the name of a YouTuber. This guy is named Rhett Riesman, and he is a YouTuber that creates videos on cryptocurrency mostly, but... He puts a unique twist on his videos where he'll teach you about crypto, he'll teach you the philosophies, the principles, the foundations and everything, but then he's going to throw in some computer science application into it. He's going to give you um, a programmatic way to get involved in crypto and to dollar cost average into these assets using programming languages, using Amazon Web Services, and a bunch of other uh, programming possibilities. And that brings me to the, the topic of today's episode, which is automating tasks using Python and Amazon Web Services. If you're interested in programming or if you're a computer person, you might be getting excited here in this. And if you're not a computer person at all, I would still recommend you stick around because there's some cool things you can learn. You might uh, have your eyes opened to a new 
possibility and a new topic that you might want to learn more about. So I, I think this will fit for general audiences, uh, some of the content we're going to be sharing today. So sit back and prepare yourself to go on a learning adventure. I would like to give another shout out, not only to the YouTuber Rhett Reisman, but to the book called Automate the Boring Stuff with Python. This is a book that I read most of. I think that I might have skipped around towards the end of a couple chapters, but uh, I did get the main part of this book read. Um, so many cool features the Python programming language gives you. So many capabilities, so many libraries and resources. So Automate the Boring Stuff with Python is a book that takes you through some of the basics of Python, and then it's going to take you a step further and show you how you can automate certain tasks in your everyday life so that you're not doing repetitive, brainless, mindless duties, and you let the computers do that for you while you can focus on other things. And I think that's a really cool way to live life by leveraging the technology we have in today's world and automating the boring stuff. So there's going to be a lot of cool ideas in this book. There's going to be a lot of helpful tutorials in there. If you guys are interested, you can look it up, automate the boring stuff with Python. You might be able to find a free PDF of it online. Uh, I would highly recommend if you're interested in this topic. But that's going to do it for the shout outs today. Let's get into my little uh, presentation, if you will, explanation perhaps. I want to give you guys a description of the Python programming language in case you are brand new to programming and brand new to Python. So I went on to the Python wiki and I pulled this uh, little intro descriptive paragraph type of deal. So what is Python? Python is a clear and powerful object-oriented programming language. When they say object-oriented, that's just a way of referring to classes and instances and objects and inheritance. Basically a bunch of capabilities that you have at your fingertips. If you're a beginner, you don't really need to know that right away, but if you're more advanced in Python, that's going to be helpful later on. So, Some of Python's notable features. Python uses an elegant syntax, making the programs you write easier to read. If you guys have ever thought of programming as a non-programmer, you're probably thinking of a ton of zeros and ones and crazy text that doesn't make any sense and a lot of uh, punctuation and stuff that you have no idea what's going on. Python is really intuitive. I think that the syntax and the structure of Python code makes it more comprehensive and easy to understand, whereas some of the older and outdated uh, legacy languages, if you will, kind of uh, are intimidating and complicated to people that don't use them. So that really uh, helps Python become more beginner friendly, I would say. It's an easy to use language that makes it simple to get your program working. This makes Python ideal for prototype development and other ad hoc programming tasks without compromising maintainability. Python comes with a large standard library that supports many common programming tasks, such as connecting to web servers, searching text with regular expressions, reading and modifying files. So you're going to have Python by itself as the programming language, but then there are these libraries that you can import. Some of them are community-created, 
So little calls and functions that you can make that uh, really collect a lot of complicated procedures and allow you to use them in a compact and easy to remember manner. And these libraries span across so many different topics and software and ideas and use cases. So it's really just the world is your oyster in Python. You have so many capabilities and that's kind of the the point I'm trying to make here. Some of the programming language specific features of Python. Uh, Python has a variety of basic data types. You got your numbers, your strings, lists, and dictionaries. Python code can be grouped into modules and packages, like I mentioned with the libraries. This Python language supports raising and catching exceptions, resulting in cleaner error handling. That's something that I've used quite a bit, is uh, raising and catching exceptions. If you're creating a process, and at one point in the process, some user types in an invalid input, instead of having it crash the entire script, you can uh, create an error message that can redirect them, provide an explanation as to what went wrong, and that can help them kind of get across that uh, in the next attempt. Python data types are strongly and dynamically typed. Mixing incompatible types, like attempting to add a string and a number, will cause an exception to be raised, so errors are caught sooner. Some of the most frustrating things in programming is when your script has an error, and the error message is not very specific, it's not very helpful. I think Python does a, generally does a good job of being specific with its error messages. It'll tell you what went wrong, where it went wrong, and if you look up the error messages, there's a lot of community resources that'll tell you how to resolve that issue. So all in all, Python is very ideal. It's the ideal programming language. It's very uh, community-driven. I think that there's a lot of users out there, and there's going to be a lot of solutions if you look on Stack Overflow for most of the ideas and most of the scripts you want to type up. You're going to have help out there for you. And it's powerful. I mean, you can do nearly anything in Python if you have the patience and the brain power to put it all together. So if I'm speaking so highly of Python, surely I would have used it to this point, right? You are correct. I have used Python for a certain amount of things. I'm going to share with you guys some of the ways I've used Python to automate some tasks and complete some objectives and just help in my everyday life. First one I want to share with you guys is sending automatic text text messages that can go to your phone from Python straight to your phone. So what I've done in the past is I, I type up a Python script that uses web scraping, which is a way of going on the internet and looking at certain web pages and you're using Python to tell the program what to look up and what information to grab and bring it into the output and then you can use a website called Twilio, which has an API, application programming interface. 
you're going to be able to connect the Twilio API into your Python code and use this web scraped information that your Python script has gathered for you. Put that into a text message and send it off to the phone number that you have entered into the script. So that's really cool. Here's how I use that to my advantage. I created a Python script that goes on the internet and searches up Iowa Hawkeyes football, for example, and it will look at the news section of Google. It will grab the first article that it finds, grab me the headline of that article, and then grab me the link to that article. I web scrape for those two pieces of information, bring them into my Python code, and put them into the SMS message. So then when I run the Python script, it will automatically look on the internet, grab that first article's headline and link, put it into a readable text format, send it off to my phone, and I will automatically have the first top article on Google for Iowa Hawkeyes football. What I did is I did this with the four major sports that I'm most interested in, which is Iowa football, Iowa basketball, Mavericks basketball, and Chargers football. And uh, with the help from Amazon Web Services, which you guys are going to hear about a little later, I automated these scripts to run. So on Monday at, for example, 9 p.m., I would set a schedule for that to run at that point. Monday night would be Iowa football. Grab me that first article headline and link and text it to my phone. Tuesday night would be Iowa basketball. Wednesday night would be Mavericks basketball. Thursday night would be Chargers football. So every night from those four nights, I would have an article automatically texted to my phone. And I could just keep up to date with the sports I love and do it by using these Python programming tools that I have in my weaponry. Another cool thing that I did using Python is I created a Twitter bot. I know what you're thinking. Elon Musk is going to be after me. He's going to try to shut me down. But this was in 2019, early 2020. So this was a long time ago. I no longer do this, but it was just kind of a fun experimental way to uh, expand my knowledge and work with APIs and Twitter and stuff. So what I did is I got a Twitter API key, which you can do on Twitter for free. And you connect it using the uh, public key and secret key, put that into your Python script. So this is actually set up very similar to the text messaging uh, function. You just need to have certain text that you want to tweet out, and then you run this Python script and it'll tweet it for you. So again, I used the power of web scraping with Python. I searched up on the internet, Florida man, and the date that the script is going to be running. So Python knows what day it is, and you can use that to your advantage. So if I run this script, it'll look up Florida man, December, whatever. The day this gets published will be December 14th, I believe. So it would look up Florida man, December 14th, and it would grab that first article that it finds, give me the headline, give me the link, and it would tweet that out onto Twitter, corresponding to the day that it was tweeted. So the reason I choose Florida man is because there's this meme going around. It's been around for a long time with these crazy article headlines 
of Florida man doing something strange or illegal or both. For example, before I started this episode, I looked up Florida man in Google, and I found one of the first headlines, which was, Florida man accused of stealing over $1,000 worth of toothbrushes, then throws them off a bridge. <laughs> like, what? What are these people in Florida doing, man? And it's, it's all the time. You can look up Florida man and any date of the year, and you'll get some crazy headline. I, I always tell people, look up Florida man and your birthday, and you will have a really strange and unique article that you can share with your friends. So I did this with the power of web scraping. Florida man plus the day of the tweet, and you grab that information, put it into the Python script, and it'll tweet it out for you. And you can set that up with AWS to run at automatic intervals, and life would be good. So very powerful stuff we're talking about here. So those were two things that I've done using Python. I also have two more things before we get into the next part of the episode. The third thing that I've done is create a compound interest calculator. It's going to take user input and output the compound interest that you've earned on your initial investment based on the time horizon of your investment and the compound frequency and a bunch of other settings that you can mess with. So I created a menu with uh, error handling and uh, control flow and everything. So you're going to run the script. It'll ask you for your initial investment. So you can just type in like $5,000. Then it'll ask you how frequently do you want this to be compounded and at what interest rate is this going to be compounded at and a couple other things. And then it'll output a nicely formatted table with the year as one column and with the amount as another column. And you get to see at each year by year what your total's at. It should be growing exponentially as compound interest does. And then at the very bottom, it'll output a graph showing you the nice uh, curve upward. So, so those are using um, different libraries in Python. I think matplotlib was one of them. Uh, a couple others in there. Pandas is another uh, excellent Python library you can get into. So as a finance nerd, this was very appealing to me. I had to give it a go and I enjoyed the product that I created. Another thing that I did with Python is created a script that will show you the dividend history of any given stock ticker symbol. So all you have to do is type in the ticker symbol of the stock. It's going to use the Yahoo Finance URL and input this ticker into the URL. And you can specify a time range and frequency of dividends and all this stuff. And it's going to give you the link to the Yahoo website with this uh, historical data. I didn't quite get far enough as to bring it in with a nicely formatted table into the Python shell, but I think that's something I could definitely whip up if I spent a little more time on it. So there you go. Four things that I did. One of them was automatic text messages with web scraping. Second one was creating a Twitter bot with web scraping. Then I did a compound interest calculator and a dividend history uh, link provider, I guess. So that's what I've done so far using Python. Um, I've done a couple other things, but I think those are the most uh, practical. But let me show you 
another couple of uh, popular tasks that you can automate using Python. These are just kind of some community-created popular projects you can do. Um, if you're interested in doing these, you can definitely link this up to Amazon Web Services and have it run at set intervals. You don't have to have the file open and press the run button to do this, so keep that in mind. One thing that you can do that I've seen quite a bit on the internet is file management on your computer. So creating new files and writing text to them. If you say you wanted to do something similar to the web scraping uh, SMS text message thing, you could web scrape data from the internet and just put it into a text file on your computer and save it. For some reason, if that was appealing to you, you could do that. I think there's quite a few applications where that would be helpful. You can rename files in your computer using Python. You can copy them, move them, delete them. All sorts of different file management procedures are available for you. Another thing you can do with Python, create and edit Excel spreadsheets. Excel is very powerful, as a lot of you probably know, but it can become even more powerful when you mix in some Python. There's packages out there that allow you to call existing Python code to perform calculations in Excel. You can pull in data from external systems, such as databases. Uh, you can query large data sets to present summary level data in Excel. So there are things, believe it or not, there are functions beyond what Excel provides for you. And bringing in Python into the equation will give you that uh, extra layer of customizability. So when you think that Excel might be limiting you in some way, I would invite you to check out Python and you might be able to create up uh, a function that can go beyond the offerings of Excel. One thing you can also do is a stock slash crypto investing bot. <laughs> I would be very, very careful about this one. If you are going to link the investing accounts and fund them with money, you better make sure you have a good Python script <laughs> before you uh, trust it with your bank account. So if you do uh, somehow come up with a script that you believe to be very useful and proven, then you can use Python to pull in financial data. Sometimes you can check, uh, depending on certain indicators in the stock market or crypto, you can wait for criteria to be met. Let's say if Bitcoin falls below $15,000, I want to buy $5,000 worth of Bitcoin. That's very possible and that can be done. All you're going to have to do is probably going to need to get uh, an API from the crypto website that you're using. I know Gemini has a lot of API tools for you. So if you have the API from the crypto exchange, you're going to be able to do some sort of check on Bitcoin's current price and use a if-else type of statement. So if the price is below a certain threshold, then you would execute the buy command and that would uh, fulfill your order. And that can be customized to your liking. You have so much power at your fingertips to control when and how you're buying crypto and stocks. If that is something that's interesting to you, 
Another thing you could do is create a password manager. Guys, it's so important. Quick little cybersecurity rant. It's so important to have a password manager. Back in the day, before I had a password manager, I would have to try to remember all the slight variations that I would add on to uh, basically my one reused password across all different websites. But if you have a password manager, all you need to remember is your master password. And from there, you're able to access all your other passwords that can be randomly generated and created based on different criteria. You can set it to different lengths and using different characters. And these can all be encrypted in a password manager. There's a lot of software out there you can use for free, uh, like LastPass or Bitwarden or Dashlane, I think, is another one. But uh, if you wanted to take it a step further and create your own password manager, look no further than Python. Python allows you to securely save passwords with a simple interface. If you wanted to create a password manager, they would let you store it, store all your passwords in an encrypted SQL database. Within this database, each password and notes attached to them are encrypted. So that's going to let you easily manage all your passwords in a much more secure way than sticky notes or an Excel sheet or remembering them in your head. Another Python project. We got two more, guys. <laughs> we got two more, and then we'll get into AWS. Converting text to audio files. So let's say you have a PDF document with a bunch of text in it, and you're like, man, I do not want to read all this. I just want to close my eyes and listen to someone tell it to me. There's a Python library called GTTS, which is stands for Google Text-to-Speech. It's a very easy tool to use. It's going to convert all the text that you've entered into audio, which then can be saved as an MP3 file. And you download this MP3 file, and you can play it, and it's going to talk through all the text that you've provided. Then we can go a different direction if you wanted. We can go and do the exact opposite thing. Let's say you wanted to transcribe audio into text. Python will let you use the speech recognition library to identify words and phrases in the spoken language and convert them into readable text format. I think this is very useful for YouTubers and other video content creating platform type of people because uh, closed captioning is becoming more popular. I think that if you go on YouTube Shorts or TikTok or some of these short video platforms, uh, people seem to be going crazy with the closed captioning recently. And there's ways to do that automatically using Python. You can upload your audio or video file and use this speech recognition library, and they will give you the spoken words in readable text format. I think that's enough examples to prove my point. Python, the programming language, lets you do so many different things. And if you can imagine it, you might be able to do it in Python. There's a good chance that there's a solution out there. So why aren't we able to just call it an episode right now and say Python is the greatest by itself? Because when you're using Python, you need your computer to be turned on. 
you need to have Python opened up. You need to have your mouse hovering over the run button and you got to click run for the Python script to actually do anything. If you turn your computer off, you're not going to be able to run the Python script that you just created. So if we're going to automate a task to run at a certain interval or at a certain time that we've scheduled, if your computer's not on, it's not going to run, like I just said. So that presents us with a problem then, because we don't want to have to come back to our computer, open it up, turn it on, go find that file of the Python script you just created, open it up, click run. Nobody wants to do that every single time that you want this function to run. That's where Amazon Web Services comes in. Amazon Web Services, Incorporated, is a subsidiary of Amazon that provides on-demand cloud computing platforms and APIs. So cloud computing. The cloud is this concept of up there in the air. It's not on your local hardware. It's not stored necessarily on your computer, but it's stored in a shared accessible location that will be up and running more constantly than your personal computer. I think of Google when I think of cloud. Um, you also have Microsoft and Apple that have their versions of it. But I think for whatever reason, Google is what comes to mind for me. I guess I use Google Drive quite a bit, which is a cloud file storage system. But what Amazon Web Services is going to allow you to do is store these Python functions in a cloud instance and dedicate resources to running that Python script regardless of if your computer is turned on and accessible. There is a way to do this for free. You don't have to go buy a ton of cloud resources on AWS to be able to do these Python functions. Although if you want to get more advanced, that would probably be necessary. For the small projects that I've done so far, and for most people's cases, I think that you're able to achieve anything you need to with the free version of Amazon Web Services. So how do we get this set up? How do we get cooking with uh, these recurring automatic Python script executions? Well, you're going to get yourself an Amazon Web Services account. Again, don't pay for anything. You should be able to do it all in the free tier of Amazon Web Services. Then there's going to be two branches of AWS you want to look for. Two functions, I guess you could say. Number one is Lambda. Lambda functions in AWS. These are an ideal compute service for many application scenarios. As long as you can run your application code using the Lambda standard runtime environment and within the resources that Lambda provides. This is where you're going to go put your Python code that you created, and you're going to toss it on into Lambda, and it's going to be able to execute the Python code that you've written. It is a little bit different than straight up Python because the packages and the libraries that you use are going to have to be imported slightly differently. I think that you need to get some sort of zip file to provide for AWS rather than just doing an easy uh, import pandas type of call. So 
I think that there's YouTube resources out there that'll be able to teach you a little bit better than I could about that. Um, if you have any questions, definitely hit me up, but, um, there's, there's a solution to that. So Lambda is where you put your code in AWS. And there is a second function we want to use called Amazon event bridge. This is going to let you schedule AWS Lambda functions. You can set up a rule to run an AWS Lambda function on a schedule using cron expressions. Cron expressions are a string of characters used to indicate a schedule for events to run. For example, 0, 15, 10, asterisk, asterisk, question mark. That is a cron expression, which means run at 10.15 a.m. every day. However, you want to be careful when you're typing out these cron expressions because I think Amazon Web Services defaults to Greenwich Mean Time, GMT, or UTC. I think those are the same time zone. So you're going to have to account for the time zone difference and translate that to your location. So you might have to do some trial and error with that, uh, converting time zones and everything, and cron expression creation. But if you just type up uh, cron expression creation, I think there's a lot of websites out there that'll help you uh, type in like regular readable text, and they'll convert it to a cron expression for you to use. So it's not too difficult. Uh, if I can figure it out, then I think anyone can. So it's going to be Lambda and EventBridge in AWS. And if you have your Python code, you can pop it on in, start scheduling these things. And if you test it out, I would invite you to definitely test it out before relying on it to execute it on its own. There's a good possibility that you might have missed something small and you have to go back and look at some maybe the libraries you brought in or the code that you pasted in or the cron expression might be slightly off. You're going to have to trial an error with it a little bit, do some debugging, but uh, eventually you should have a fully automatic Python script that will execute the task that you've coded at regularly set intervals. And that's such a great feeling when you get this set up because I've done it a couple of times with a couple of different things. And that feeling you get after creating a programming project where the simple tasks, the monotonous, everyday, boring tasks are automated with Python and they are completed at set intervals using Amazon Web Services. It makes you feel like a genius. It makes you feel like you've cheated the system in a good way and you are on cloud nine. Let me tell you, when I first got that text message about uh, the Iowa football articles and Chargers and Mavericks and Iowa basketball and everything, it was such a, a sense of accomplishment because it's something that you don't really find out just by messing around. Like if you went into Excel and you wanted to do some of the Excel graphs, you can kind of figure it out just by messing around in there. But to create a Python script, put it into AWS and create an event bridge Lambda function schedule with a cron expression, you're not going to accidentally stumble into doing that. You have to really look up some resources, spend time on it, research it, practice, and debug 
but it's the difficult process that makes it so rewarding. And it's the task that you've automated that will give you that sense of accomplishment. Now, by no means am I a groundbreaking programmer or computer science whiz. Uh, I've used AWS a little bit before. I took a class on cloud computing where we used Elastic Cloud Compute function of AWS, also known as EC2. And we also used Simple Storage Service on AWS, also known as S3. So I'm familiar with the software. I'm familiar with the framework a little bit. So when I found that Rhett Reisman video on using Lambda functions, I was able to kind of jump in and go with it and pick it up a little quicker than probably most people would that hadn't used AWS. So if you struggle with it early on, that's to be expected. I wouldn't expect people to jump right in and succeed on the first attempt. But that's like with anything in life, you know, it's going to be trial and error. It's going to be frustration, going back to the drawing board, come up with a new plan, try something else, and eventually you should get it if you stick with it. The reason that I found out that this even exists, like I said in the beginning, the YouTuber Rhett Reisman, he showed us how to invest in crypto at set intervals. And when you're investing in stocks, this can be done using the stock brokerage that you use, most likely. I know that there's a lot of um, brokerages out there like Robinhood or Webull or M1 Finance that let you set recurring purchases. And these are a lot easier than going through all the hoops that I just described. But crypto is a little bit different. If you try to set a recurring deposit on a crypto exchange, they're going to tag on some fees on that purchase that are larger than what you would have if you do it programmatically. There's ways to set limit orders on Gemini and Coinbase and some other exchanges that give you better fees. So it's to your advantage to learn these processes so you can uh, not only set up a dollar cost averaging system, but get better fees. And so Rhett Reisman showed me how to do that. And I currently use his code and Amazon Web Services, Python, Lambda, EventBridge, all that good stuff I just mentioned. I use that still to this day to purchase cryptocurrency at set intervals based on predetermined conditions. Uh, I think the code looks at the price of Bitcoin and it will take, it will set a limit order at like 95% of the current price or something like that. Maybe like 97% of the current price. So it's to be expected that within an hour or so, Bitcoin's price will slightly go down, slightly go up, fluctuate a little bit. What we're doing is setting a price slightly lower than the current price so that this limit order will execute when that fluctuation goes in the downward direction. And when that happens and the threshold is met, we will purchase Bitcoin and we will get the best fee structure because we're doing it with a limit order. And that's what we're trying to achieve and that's what we do. After implementing this crypto purchasing on Lambda, on Amazon Web Services, 
I did a similar thing with the SMS text message Python script. I basically used Rhett Reisman's structure all the way through, except replaced the Python code with the code I had for the uh, text messaging script. I did have to kind of fiddle around with some package implementation for Twilio and API calls there, but I was able to figure it out and get those text messages sending. Unfortunately, I did max out the usage of the free trial, the free resource version of Twilio, so I think I, uh, I'd have to create a different account to do that again, but it was so cool to get that set up and cooking, and I'm really glad that I spent the time to do that. Like I said, I didn't want this episode to be a step-by-step tutorial. I'm kind of assuming that you know the basic level of Python programming to be able to do this kind of stuff. I'm assuming you have a general knowledge of software computing and websites and everything. So if you wanted a more from-the-ground-up type of tutorial, I would encourage you to look on YouTube I'm not going to be taking it that detailed right now, but I just kind of wanted this episode to open your guys' eyes to some of the possibilities that are out there. Let you guys know that we have so much capabilities. We have so many possibilities. We have all these use cases with Python. If you take the time to learn this programming language, look around on the internet, look around at some of the community-created projects and ideas I think you can find something that would interest you and you can go ahead and give an attempt at creating some sort of Python script that could help you in your everyday life. Maybe it's just a quick web scraping to get some information. Maybe it's just a quick text message. But just doing these uh, sort of exercises and completing these tasks, it'll help you kind of get a better understanding of Amazon Web Services, get a better understanding of Python and how the libraries work, and how the APIs interact. And it'll help you get something to put on your resume if you're someone in the computing field that wants to have projects listed in your portfolio. I would highly recommend doing this because I put some of the stuff that I've done with Python on my resume and portfolio. And I think that'll help you stand out in life if you're looking to get programming jobs. So there you go. I hope you guys learned something from this little uh, chat. If you guys made it this far in the episode, let me know if you have any questions, feedback, or ideas. I'd be happy to go into more detail on a one-on-one level with you guys, answer any questions, give you guys some ideas to try on your own, or help you get set up with this process. I like to hear from you guys. I like to engage with the listeners get your guys' perspective on these episodes and on my content. So the DMs are open. Let me know what you want to know. Let me know what you want to hear. And I will get back to you as soon as I can. But that brings us to the point in the episode, which I'm sure you're well aware, that it is time to see what is cooking in each of the four categories. What's cooking in sports? Starting off with some sad news today, unfortunately. Mississippi State football coach Mike Leach has passed away. He was one of the great personalities in college football, and he was an innovative head coach. 
I remember seeing so many interviews of Mike Leach answering random off-topic questions, and he would go into so much detail about some of his favorite Halloween candies, uh, relationship advice, general life advice, so many random things that have nothing to do with football. And the interviews would ask him about it. And 99% of the coaches out there would give you some general answer. Oh, we're focused on one day at a time, get better, execute. And Mike Leach would actually give you a genuine, authentic response. And he would take time to engage with the people, engage with the reporters. And the people loved him for that. And he was a, a great person made some important contributions to the game of football, and we got to send up our prayers to his family and the football program. Iowa basketball absolutely dominated Iowa State without the help of Chris Murray. Yes, that's right, our best player, Chris Murray. My man was injured and did not play, and we were taking on Iowa State, and I believe Iowa State was ranked, and I believe they were favored, and... All the so-called experts were telling you that the clones were going to come on into Carver and get the job done. Well, guess what, boys? The Hawks had different ideas. Huge win for the Hawks. We started off this game 15 to nothing. And then we stretched it to 18 to 2. And we really never looked back after that. Huge lead at halftime. Huge win in the end. Tony Perkins had a huge dunk on a fast break. My man was floating in the air, absolutely slammed it down, and we restored order in the state of Iowa after the disappointing loss in football. And to put the cherry on top, Iowa women's basketball also got the job done, beating Iowa State. I believe Iowa State women were also favored in that game, so take that. NFL, Chargers, we got an important win against the Dolphins. How about that? Whew. We are on a roll this week, I'll tell you. Justin Herbert was putting on a clinic. There's no other way to describe it. Herbert is a top five quarterback, no doubt, in the NFL right now. You can argue top three if you wanted to. He shut down any debate that you could possibly put forward that Tua is anywhere near as good a quarterback as Herbert, all those experts out there, the Emmanuel Achos of the world, just trying to get views, just trying to get clicks, and they know deep in their heart that Herbert's the better quarterback, as everyone does. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to admit it. So now more people are going to be admitting it because they just saw it with their own eyes, and some of the casual reporters out there that don't actually watch the Charger games like to blame Justin Herbert for never making the playoffs and not winning consistently. But the diehard Chargers fans will know that it's the it's the organization that's failing Herbert. It's not Herbert that's failing the organization. So that's how it's always been. That's how it's been with Philip LT Gates. And I think that's the way it's going right now with Herbert. The Chargers are unable to put together a championship caliber team. And it starts at the top with our owner, Dean Spanos, who has done a horrible job. And it will continue to most likely go the same way as usual unless there is major changes in the organization. So hopefully 
someday we will get new management in there that can do a competent job, but we are stuck with what we have for now. You can't fire your owner, unfortunately. Wide receivers were getting open in this game. We had Keenan Allen and Mike Williams back together for the first time in a while. Defense was playing really well. You had Vato, Michael Davis, out there running around with Tyreek and Jalen Waddle, doing his best. There was one crazy play where we fumbled the ball. Or no, excuse me, we forced the fumble on the Dolphins. And we tried to recover it. The ball was bouncing around for a while. No one could find it. Tyreek Hill grabbed the ball and ran for like a 57-yard touchdown which is just a classic Chargers play. If there was one play in NFL history to summarize the Chargers, it would be that play. But other than that, we did a mostly a good job on defense and enough to get the job done. I mean, we limited them to, what, 17 points, I believe? So Dolphins offense was very highly regarded, you could say, coming into this game. And the Chargers, with injuries everywhere, still managed to take them down. So kudos to the Bolts. Let's go. Quickly, NBA news. Not really much of a news, just update on the Mavs. Luka's still putting up big numbers. He's still doing his thing. Team performance, though, kind of up and down. You'll have some nights where guys show up, role players do their job, and you'll have other nights where maybe Luka isn't, scoring uh 30 points and he's only getting low to mid 20s we really don't have um a huge supporting cast on those nights it seems like if luca is not out there being superman then it's not looking good for the mavs we do however have kemba walker starting to get involved he was uh hitting some shots and I'd like to see that i wonder if we're going to make any trades before the trade deadline i've seen on twitter Mavs fans want us to shake up the roster a little bit. Who knows what's going to happen between now and February 9th when the NBA trade deadline is. But I will keep you tuned. I will keep you updated with the Mavs news. I know you guys are dying to find out, and that's why you keep coming back to what's cooking. So don't worry. The Mavs updates will continue as the season goes on. What's cooking in finance? Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of FTX, former CEO of FTX, has been arrested in the Bahamas. That's right. Here's a statement that they released. On the 12th of December, 2022, the Office of the Attorney General of the Bahamas is announcing the arrest by the Royal Bahamas Police Force of Sam Bankman-Fried, former CEO of FTX. Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest followed receipt of formal notification from the United States that has filed criminal charges against SBF and is likely to request his extradition. Wow. We've heard Sam pleading his case the past couple weeks. We've heard him going on what I called an all-cup tour, referring to Mario Kart, the one where you go and go around the entire planet going to every location and racing this time it was sam going around on every possible interview and talking eventually bahamas police force decided that uh it's time to it's time to do their due diligence and arrest this man i think the united states wants him arrested too and 
Bahamas is just kind of going in there and doing the job. They're going to be communicating on next steps. Probably going to be a trial coming up eventually. I think uh, Sam Bankman-Fried requested bail, and they denied him. So there you go. SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, Sam Bankman-Fraud, now arrested, and the legal system will decide his fate. In other stock market news, GameStop. Quarter three earnings were once again down. GameStop has been trying to expand their digital presence. As you know, they're a brick-and-mortar type of uh, operation. A lot of in-person stores. They used to be in a lot of malls. I remember going to Lindale Mall back in the day. I think they're also at Westdale Mall, Cedar Rapids. Those were the days, man. You go in there and look at all the new games and because that's the place you would go there was there was not a there was no pre-order online digital copy it was a go to GameStop and see what's popping man so big part of my childhood and I hope that they can find a way to make it they're struggling to gain momentum uh, still kind of living off the crazy hype rally of early 2021 the retail investor craze uh, that kind of took the stock market by storm Um, the short squeeze if you will all the investors and the hedge funds that shorted GameStop, the retail investors came together and purchased up a bunch of shares and forced the retail, or excuse me, forced the uh, hedge funds to kind of buy back a bunch of shares because they shorted them. So they had to go and cover their shorts and it boosted the price and went crazy. And it's been volatile ever since the beginning of 2021. Starting to become less and less relevant once again. I hope that uh, they find their they find their role in the video game market, and they're not just living off of uh, the hype of yesteryear. Uh, hopefully, they're not just delaying the inevitable demise of the brick and mortar GameStop franchise. I suppose you could say. I want them to survive, and uh, I will be updating you if any notable news comes out on GameStop. Last part of finance here. Supposedly, Elon Musk is no longer the richest person in the world. Dun, dun, dun. That title now belongs to a man named Bernard Arnault. He is the CEO of Louis Vuitton. Luxury brand. I don't know what Elon did to put his uh, net worth down underneath uh, Mr. Arnault. Maybe it was the recent Tesla stock uh, fall-off. Tesla stock struggling as of late. I think it's at a two-year low now. But uh, these kind of things are hard to measure. They fluctuate a ton with stock prices and the values of assets and everything. So on any given day, it could fluctuate and change right back to Elon. So not really uh, super important in the grand scheme of things, but if you're keeping score out there, Yes, it's Bernard Arnault, now the most richest person in the world. What's cooking in technology? A company called Shield AI raises another $60 million at a $2.3 billion valuation for its military autonomous flying technology. Wow, Shield AI flying technology. Let's listen to this. 
Defense technology continues to get a lot of attention from investors, and today, one of the bigger startups in the space is announcing more funding. Shield AI, which develops platforms and planes for autonomous flying systems, targeting the United States military and its allies as customers, has raised $60 million in funding, money that it will be using to continue developing its technology. The money is coming in as an additional part of Shield AI's Series E, and it brings the total round to $225 million. Shield AI announced the previous $165 million tranche in June, which gave the startup valuation $2.3 billion. We've confirmed with Brandon Seng, Shield AI's president. Shout out to the guy named Brandon, you love to see it. Who co-founded the company with his brother Ryan, who is the CEO. That this extension came in at the same valuation. This latest $60 million came from a single investor. One man giving Shield AI $60 million. That man is Hollywood producer Thomas Toll. Previous investors in the company include Snowpoint Ventures, Riot Ventures, Disruptive, Homebrew, Point72 Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, Briar Capital, and SVB Capital. Interestingly, the company actually closed this extra funding a week after the last round was announced. I don't know if you guys recognize any of those previous investors, but I kind of do. I think Homebrew, I recognize that name because I downloaded some mods on my Nintendo Wii that let you play GameCube games without using an actual GameCube disc. You can uh, download them digitally on Wii if you download a Homebrew app based on some internet download. So I have experience using Homebrew for GameCube game emulation. I think that Homebrew was the main uh, player in that uh, setup. So if that's the kind of stuff they're in, and they're expanding into uh, Shield AI, then more power to them. GameCube holds a special place in my heart, and to see that their legacy is continuing, whether or not it's involved in GameCube, more power to them. You do you, bro. You do you. What's cooking in video games? Earlier in this episode, you guys heard me talk about the Florida man meme. Florida man always doing something crazy. This time, it's Texas man. Texas man amasses collection of 24,268 video games. Huh? Are you serious, boys? The Texas man who holds the Guinness World Record for largest collection of video games said his collection has now grown to 24,268 games. Antonio Romero Montero of Richmond was originally awarded the record in December 2021 when his collection totaled 20,139 video games. Guinness World Records said Montero, whose collection spans more than 100 video game consoles, Huh? 100 video game consoles? I didn't know all those existed. Montero now owns a total of 24,268 games, amassing a collection worth an estimated $2.1 million. Originally, my collection focused on purchasing and repurchasing some of the games I played my youth, Montero told Guinness World Records. 
Slowly, it expanded to include games I always wanted to play, but hadn't had the opportunity to, and eventually expanded to completing collections for individual systems. Montero's collection also earned him the Guinness World Record titles for largest collection of Xbox items, largest collection of Sega items, largest collection of Nintendo items, and largest collection of PlayStation items. I wonder what this guy's electricity bill is. If he's playing all these video games, got over 100 consoles. Surely he's got to have a lot of outlets to be plugging them bad boys in. I wouldn't think that he would do them at the same time because uh, that's going to be a disaster on the electrical bill. But hey, man, if you enjoy playing these games or just simply collecting them, then if that's your hobby, bro, you go, you go for it. I hope that they actually get used, and I hope that he still plays a lot of these games and they're not just sitting on the shelf. But, uh, I mean, hey, people have their hobbies and they go to the extreme. And if he's able to gain some notoriety off of this, then uh, good for him. Antonio Romero Montero. Remember the name. If you need a video game, you go ask him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude today's episode of the What's Cooking podcast, episode 21, talking about some Python tasks being automated with the power of Amazon Web Services. I think that not everyone is going to necessarily take an interest right away in programming, but uh, I want you guys to be aware of some of the possibilities out there because if you take the time to learn Python and Amazon Web Services. There's so many resources out there that allow you to do that. And if you take the time to do that, you might be able to speed up and automate some of the boring processes in life. And that'll give you time to do the more important things that you are, would rather do. So it's all about efficiency here at What's Cooking. It's all about automating the boring stuff with Python here at What's Cooking. And I'm a big uh, pro programming guy, pro Python, pro AWS, pro technology. So there you have it. What's underscore cooking on Twitter. What's underscore cooking on Instagram. You can hit me up on Facebook. You can hit me up on YouTube. Follow the link tree in the bio of the social medias. Next week we will be back. Who knows if a guest will join me. I'm going to leave that up to be a surprise as always. But until then, have a good one. See you next Wednesday. Peace.